Bridge is an acronym for books recycled to instruct, disciple, guide, and educate. We firmly believe that reading is critical for Christians to grow in their faith, and so we strive to make Bibles and gospel-based Christian books available at very affordable prices. Our purpose is to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ through written and spoken word. We do this by providing resources and educational opportunities for people to grow in their knowledge of biblical truth so that they are equipped to share that truth with others. You can visit our website at bridgebookstexas.org where you can find our Reformed podcast, Bridge Radio, where we bring on Christian authors, apologists, and scholars such as Dr. James White, Dr. John Frame, Joe Beakey, Jeff Durbin, John Sampson, and Tim Trumpert. You can find Bridge Radio on iTunes, Android, Windows, and Google Play or stream via our website. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. In the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. I am your host as always, Julio Amad Rodriguez, or you can call me July, and we are back with another episode of Bridge Radio. This is episode number 34, and today we have the honor and privilege of having a very special guest who has uh, who has been an influence to us here at the ministry. We sell his books, uh, and we've been blessed by him. Mm-hmm. And uh, today there's actually going to be a very interesting topic, and uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the continuation of the gifts. Of prophecy of the of tongues and uh, mm-hmm. uh, as you know if you've listened to this podcast we are uh, reformed and so uh, I think it's a it's a very interesting topic because mm-hmm. predominantly in the reform camp uh, they're cessationist uh, and, and not really a continuationist and, and for those who are listening they're like I have no idea what those terms mean don't worry we're gonna go ahead and discuss them um, but uh, that's gonna be the topic of today and uh, but before we get to that I just want to make a quick announcement um, uh, we just got with Subsplash, and for those of you who are listening through Google, Android, uh, Windows, uh, iTunes, I don't know if I said that already, but through other means uh, of listening to the podcast or even on our website, um, we're going to be developing an app with Subsplash that will be out between four or six weeks. And nice. uh, I just so uh, just keep us in prayer of that because uh, it's exciting. yeah, not only are we doing Bible studies here and, and engaging in our community and doing this podcast to uh, fulfill the Great Commission in uh, equipping the saints for ministry and, and, and sound doctrine, but uh, we just pray that that app would be used in the same way mm-hmm. uh, for not only to listen to this podcast but to uh, have devotionals, readings, or maybe read your Bible on, and also look at future events and uh, conferences. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, uh, we're we're very excited. Please keep us in prayer with that and. And uh, as well, I want to make a shout out to Dwayne Atkins mm. of the Bar Podcast. Uh, he connected us. We'll talk about that in a later podcast of what that was. But mm. uh, we just want to say thank you, Dwayne, from the Bar Bodcat Podcast. And uh, for those of you who are our listeners, go check him out. He's yes. up on iTunes, and uh, he's a great brother. 
uh, and friend of the ministry. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you, Dwayne, and uh, appreciate you very much, brother. Very much. Um, so f- first of all, um, I, I think I want to clarify something in, in this podcast. But before we move on, before anything else, uh, and I would like us to kind of just discuss this real quick, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's just uh, the, the disagreements amongst Christians. Mm. Uh, how seriously should we take it? Um, just because I know, uh, you know, there are some cessationists who, who could be very, very dogmatic and be listening to us and, you know, raise up their theological swords, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I just want to be very clear uh, as we begin this podcast that, uh, you know, we, we love we our guests, we uh, love him, we consider him a brother in Christ and stuff. Absolutely. And I just kind of want to want to talk about that because even amongst us, we have uh, eschatolo- eschatological differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have different views of baptism and stuff, but mm-hmm. we still find harmony on the core doctrine. So you just talk about that real quick. Well, I think that, uh, you know, in the fundamentals, we need to be unified, but in the other things and non, non-essentials, there needs to be grace. And so yeah. I think that's the approach that we take in these things. You yeah. know, salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ mm-hmm. alone. And, right. You know, so things outside of that, you know, obviously the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture we hold strongly to. And Correct. So, but there are other things that are non-fundamental mm-hmm. that we can be gracious about. Yeah, of and, course. And it's great to discuss these things, right? And, yeah. And, and, and bring in, you know, we, we talk about the different topics here at Bridge and all the and, time and all the time. And this is great mm-hmm. that we can do this. On Absolutely. The yep. Yeah. This morning we were just talking about pedo baptism and uh, credo baptism. <laughs> yep. So we wouldn't hold like 30 minutes on that. But yep. anyway, I'll digress, guys. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest for today. Uh, he's obtained his uh, PhD at the University of Texas. Oh, nice. Uh, he's uh, founder of Enjoying God Ministries. He's a senior pastor of Bridgeway uh, Church in Oklahoma City and a former professor. He's the author of over two dozen books and contributors to, uh, and, and is a contributor to Zondervan Counterpoint's volume, Our Miraculous Gifts Today. Uh, and in 2017, he published the book that we're going to be talking about today, Practicing the Power. Hmm. And so once yeah. again, I would just want to uh, say it's an honor and privilege to welcome on for to the first time on Bridge Radio, uh, Dr. Sam Storms. It's great to be with you guys today. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on, taking the time to be with us. Of course, of course. Uh, so, Dr. Storm, um, for those of you, especially for our community who, who, who haven't, um, you know, uh, read your works or even know know about you, I think it would be it would be good to really start off on, uh, you know, just giving your testimony on, on how you were called to saving faith, and and also, did you uh, come from a charismatic background? Well, I was raised a Southern Baptist in the heart of Oklahoma, and uh, I was definitely not in a charismatic uh, family context or church context. In fact, it was uh, very much um, the other side of the spectrum on that particular issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, after graduating from the University of Oklahoma, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And for people who know Dallas, they know it's a great school, but um, they are known for being cessationist in their theology of miraculous gifts. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the late 1980s, so I'd been in see, I'd been in pastoral ministry about 15 years, when just through my own study of God's Word, um, I came to the conclusion that the arguments for the cessation of the gifts just didn't hold water in my in my opinion i just couldn't find justification for it in scripture mm-hmm. and so it was really in about 1988 or 89 that my theology in that regard shifted now it didn't shift in any other respect i i, I still would be classified as 
kind of a mainstream evangelical, mm-hmm. uh, reformed in my theology. And uh, mm. but so the one thing that did change was my understanding of the work of the Spirit in the in the church in the present day. So. After that, I was in a vineyard church for about seven years. I taught at Wheaton College for four years. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, I've been at uh, Bridgeway for just about ten years now. Okay. And, uh, you know, just continuing to progress in my understanding of how the Spirit operates today. Hmm. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so, I, I've read uh, some, some, some sections of your book, uh, Practicing the Power. I know Steve across mm-hmm. from me has read the whole book, mm-hmm. and I know uh, A.W. here across from me is, is really enjoying the, the work. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Storms, uh, why did you feel the need to write uh, Practicing the Power? Sure. Uh, well, one thing it's important to understand, I did not write this book to convince cessationists that the gifts are still valid and operative. Okay. Um, I do that in my contribution to the uh, Zondervan Four Views, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today. Okay. But this book was largely written in response to the overwhelming number of uh, questions and inquiries I received from pastors um, all around the country who said, they would say things like, I agree with you theologically, I agree with you biblically, but I haven't I don't have a clue how to do this and I'm terrified I'm going to blow up my church mm-hmm. if I try. Okay. And uh they were just asking for some practical how-tos. What do you do? How do you encourage the pursuit and practice mm-hmm. of the gifts? What are some things to avoid? So it, the book really was written initially to pastors and church leaders, but as it uh developed with Zondervan's help, we kind of expanded it to, to, to appeal to and to be helpful for all Christians, whether or not they're in pastoral leadership. So mm-hmm. that was really the prompting. Uh, it's just a desire to try to help pastors who, who theologically are saying, yes, I believe this is what the Bible teaches, but help me because I don't have a clue as to what the next step should be. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Uh, so, Dr. Storms, uh, in the reform camp, the question as whether the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased or continue today is hotly debated. Uh, the two positions in this debate are generally labeled as continuationism and cessationism. Uh, can you define the two camps for our listeners and us today? Sure. Well, in one sense, everybody is a continuationist because even cessationists believe that gifts like teaching and giving and mercy and serving hmm. and so on are still valid and operative. So the debate usually centers around the nine gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. <clears throat> those, are, those are the gifts that I don't like the language miraculous because I think all gifts of the Spirit are supernatural in the sense that they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, gifts that are more overtly supernatural, gifts like healing and prophecy and tongues, interpretation, word of knowledge, uh, miracles, and the like... So the question is whether or not those gifts continue to function and are given by God to people in the church today. Mm-hmm. So cessationists are very quick to point out, and, and rightly so, they don't deny that God can perform miracles today. They don't deny that God can heal. Mm. But they don't believe that um, people are gifted with these particular abilities or capacities. Um, they think that those ceased probably... Um, with the death of the last apostle or with the closing of the canon, um, and that um, that they've been largely absent in the church for all these many centuries. Okay. The continuationist says, we don't see any evidence, we don't see any biblical text that would lead us to believe 
that what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, for example, or Ephesians 4 or Romans 12, uh, we don't see any reason to believe that things have changed, that God would suddenly withdraw those gifts um, and that they would have only been operative in the church for about 50 or 60 years in the first century. We see them as being essential to the building up of the body of Christ throughout the course of church history. So that's the sense in which people are cessationists. They, and by the way, people should know that it's not secession. We're not talking about you know, the southern states seceding from the <laughs> right. Union back in the 19th century. <laughs> We're talking about cessation, which means the idea that these gifts cease, or God ceased to bestow them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, continuationists argue that the gifts continue, um, and that there's nothing in the New Testament that indicate otherwise. Mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10 is a text that's often used by cessationists to describe the completion of the canon of Scripture. Um, and I'll just read that text. It says, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, Love never fails, but there are gifts of prophecy. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And so that, that uh, verse 10, where it's, when it says the perfect comes and is often used as proof that the charismatic gifts are no longer relevant, what would you say about that? Would you not believe this passage refers to the completion of the canon of Scripture, canon of scripture and what would you believe that it refers to? Sure. I actually think this is one of the the most explicit defenses of continuationism. Hmm. That's the irony. Hmm. Um, I should point out also that very few cessationist scholars make the argument that you just made. Um, okay. In the in the Four Views book that we did, uh, Richard Gaffin, who is a wonderful Christian man and a Reformed uh, New Testament scholar, a cessationist. Uh, does not make use of this passage hmm. to try to prove that the gifts have ceased, hmm. and very few others do so. There are a handful here and there, but they are very much in the minority. And the reason is because of what he goes on to say in verses 11 through 13. Mm-hmm. And he says, for now, that is, in the present day, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, well, the then obviously is a reference to when the perfect comes. Mm-hmm. Then we'll see face to face, now, I know in part, but then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. And almost all have come to recognize that this is standard biblical language for the beatific vision. Mm-hmm. That is, when we will stand in the very presence of God, Revelation two five, we will see his face. And we will uh, then experience a knowledge of God without defect or fault or error. And we will uh, we will know even as we are fully known. And so... Most have come to understand that the perfect here is not a reference to the completion of the biblical canon. Mm-hmm. I mean, stop and think about what that means. That means, for example, that you and I today are therefore more knowledgeable and more mature than Paul and Peter and John and all those who lived in the, the period before the canon was uh, was finalized. And, right. Uh, I just I, I find that very I find that a little bit hard to believe, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. So the perfect, I think, refers to the consummation of God's purposes in Christ. It refers to the eternal state, Mm -hmm. uh, the conditions that will prevail in the new heavens and new earth when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And when that comes, any need for gifts of the Spirit uh, that communicate knowledge or insight or uh, or a unique or special form of prayer like tongues, 
they won't be necessary anymore because we'll be in the very presence of God, and uh, we will be in a state of perfection as a result of that. So I think this actually argues for continuationism because mm-hmm. John, or excuse me, John, Paul says very clearly that it's when the perfect comes that these gifts that provide only partial knowledge and insight will end, which means that they will continue until the perfect comes. Mm-hmm. You know, if I say um, that I prophesy or I exercise word of knowledge or I pray in tongues, <clears throat> but these only will exist until the perfect comes, that seems to assume that they will exist until the perfect comes, right. which is precisely what the continuationist contends for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think also Paul presumably would not have known necessarily that there would be the scripture as we have it now, you know. Um, right, He, I mean, he was living in anticipation exactly. of being alive when Jesus came back. Yeah, exactly. So the uh, the scripture as we see it now would not have been something that he probably would have even had on his, his radar because he had the, as the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. That's right, that's right. Uh, doctor, can you speak a little bit about the church leaders uh, throughout history who spoke and wrote about the continuing operations of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit? And if you can please include works of like Jonathan Edwards as well. Sure. Um, actually, in the uh, in uh, practicing the power, I have a um, an appendix in which I ask the question: You know, are spiritual were, were the gifts actually present in history? Because one of the arguments that cessationists have typically used is that uh, these gifts disappeared. Uh, after the death of John the Apostle. Mm -hmm. And I have numerous citations with full documentation. In fact, I've got a a couple of books on my desk that are book-length treatments Mm -hmm. of places all through history where the gifts were continued to operate. So just, uh, you know, names that might sound more familiar in the early years in the second century, Justin Martyr, uh, Irenaeus, uh, Eusebius, Apollinarius, Epiphanius, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, all of these individuals, Hippolytus, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, uh, all these individuals believed that the gifts were still operative. I mean, uh, Augustine is a classic example who early in his ministry argued that they had ceased, but then when he began to see miracles in his own parish and miraculous healings occur, uh, he retracted that and affirmed in the City of God, Book 22, that, in fact, these gifts were still operative. Mm. Now, I mm. do think that when the Roman Catholic Church kind of ascended into power and uh, the clergy were established as the only ones who could minister or have access to the Scriptures, mm. um, that, understandably, uh, there was not a context or atmosphere in which these gifts could operate or be encouraged. And so we see sporadic examples in the medieval period. Um, the, um, the reformers, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and others, were somewhat opposed to the claims to miraculous gifts because, primarily because, or two reasons. One was that the Roman Catholic Church was appealing to miracles performed by many of their leaders as proof that the Catholic Church was the true Church of God. And you can imagine that didn't set well with the right. Reformers. <laughs> and then, of course, there were extremists among the Anabaptists um, and other radicals who just went off the deep end mm-hmm. and were basically throwing away the Scriptures uh, and replacing it with the present tense voice of the Spirit. And that angered Luther, and he saw the damage that this caused. And we see that today. Mm-hmm. 
more extreme variations of the charismatic movement. So the, some of the reformers were, were cessationists, but then in the post-Reformation period, uh, we see once again, um, you know, among the Moravians, um, among many of the uh, uh, individuals involved in the Scottish Reformation, uh, the gifts are affirmed and practiced. Um, it's interesting, Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century mm-hmm. uh, evidently operated in the word of knowledge or prophecy, even though he was probably theologically cessationist. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, Jonathan Edwards, who's my theological hero, um, Edwards was a cessationist. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, um, I, don't, I don't think he is now, though. I think, I think now he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's thinking a little bit more accurately. But um, Edwards, Edwards was largely a cessationist because he saw abuses and extremes that broke out in the context of the First Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. And he saw people who were trying to justify certain um, unbiblical practices and immoral behavior based on the idea of, of having heard directly from God. And so he was understandably prejudiced against the idea that these gifts might still be operative. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I have I have a I have a, another question just because yeah, we we've you were mentioning right now that you know there's been theologians who uh, have were cessationists then went to continuationists and then there was some other uh, some of the reformers who were justifying their cessationism because of the Catholic Church was claiming miracles and therefore they have the authority of God. Um, and and so I, I, I want to ask the question, Dr. Storm, I, I guess today, um, where have we seen, I guess, proof or, or, or evidences directing us towards uh, uh, continuationism uh, with the gifts? Like, is there a specific person that we could point to or an event or, you know, I just, uh, and I, I typically ask this question because I tend to leave, I'm a little, uh, still figuring it out where I land in this, but I tend to lean a little more sure. cessationist. And uh, and I, I am going to read your book thoroughly. And uh, and this was a question that, you know, just listening to you that I really wanted to ask. I know it was a loaded question, but uh, yeah, if you kind of just expound on that. Well, yeah, um, it's interesting because I, I oftentimes when I talk with cessationists, they'll say, well, the reason why I'm still a cessationist is because I've just never seen uh, the biblical gifts practiced well. Mm-hmm. All I've seen is abuse and exploitation and manipulation. Right. Yeah. And they're thinking largely of the health and wealth gospel and mm-hmm. the word of faith movement, which I would uh, repudiate completely. Yeah. But um, I know of I know of countless pastors and theologians and individuals who um, operate uh, in a very biblical, humble, and Christ-exalting manner okay. uh, the, under the authority of God's Word. And I, uh, I, what I do when people ask that question, you know, it, it's good to have something in front of you mm-hmm. that you can look at that's documented. And Craig Keener, um, mm-hmm. who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, has written a two-volume work that's published by Baker Bookhouse. It's called Miracles in which he documents globally throughout the entire course of history and even into the present day literally hundreds of documented expressions of miraculous gifts of healings hmm. and similar hmm. phenomena and um i when, when people get their hands on those two volumes they say my goodness hmm. you know I've, i was led to believe that this just simply wasn't happening and people were making false claims so if somebody really wants to dig in deeply, they need to get Craig's two-volume work called Miracles and just kind of immerse themselves in it, and you will see um, amazing documented evidence uh, for these kinds of phenomena. Hmm. 
Hmm. Okay. That's great. That's that's great. Um, okay, so for uh, for Agabus's prophecy, uh, this is something that that uh, we had a very long discussion for an hour about. Like I just said, Dr. Storm, I, I tend to lean uh, cessationist, and I'm still working all this out. But um, um, in, in your book, uh, you you um, you see that there is a discrepancy in Acts 21, uh, verses 11 and, and 33, and uh, in, in that Agabus was prophesying that the Jews will bind Paul and hand him to the Gentiles. Yet uh, what happens is that the, the Rome, which who are the Gentiles, uh, the commander, had Paul bound and eventually handed him over to the Jews. Um, how do you explain Agabus' uh, prophecies as being incorrect? Well, it wasn't entirely incorrect. Um, I, I think that we see here a perfect illustration of the three component elements in most prophetic ministry. And I talk about this briefly in the book. I think in most prophetic utterances, there is the revelation, there's the interpretation, there's the application. And that's really true even with what we call, you know, inscripturated prophecy. We take the Word of God written. If you're preaching, let's say you're preaching uh, through the book of Acts. The revelation is right there in front of you in black and white. God has preserved it for us. That's infallible. It's inerrant. But I think all of us would admit we don't always interpret it accurately. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've misinterpreted Scripture so many times over the, my four and a half decades of ministry, it, it, I'm embarrassed, but I've, I've changed my theological views. I used to teach things that I now know are wrong. So my interpretation of the revelation can go askew. Mm-hmm. And then also the application. When we then take, all right, this is what the word means. Here's how you're to respond. Here's how it applies to your life. Likewise, we hope we are doing it in an accurate way, but sometimes we don't. Mm-hmm. So I think probably what happened, and again, I admit I'm speculating here. We don't have it recorded in Scripture, but I think it is the best explanation for the data that we do have in Scripture. Mm -hmm. I suspect that Agabus had a vision, and in this vision he saw Paul bound hand and foot and surrounded by an angry Jewish mob. And then he saw Paul later in uh, in a Roman prison Mm -hmm. and being uh, uh, prosecuted. And I think the revelation that he got was spot on. Obviously, God reveals something. God doesn't make a mistake. It was infallible and inerrant. But then Agabus, in all likelihood, said, hmm, I guess this must mean that the Jews who are surrounding him are the ones who bound him. And um, they are the ones who delivered him over to Rome, and that's why he's in their prison. And then the application was... Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm, this yeah. means you shouldn't go. God doesn't want you to go there. Right. So I think he got the revelation correct, but I think he probably collapsed his interpretation and application into it and passed all of it off as if that's what he received from the Lord. Mm. Now, let me, let me add to something here. Let me back up in Acts 21. We need to go back to verse 4, because there we're told that they landed at Tyre, and they were staying with the disciples at Tyre for seven days. Now listen to this in Acts 21.4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And you know what Paul did? He went on to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, why did Paul disobey that exhortation? He did because back in Acts chapter 19 and 20, He records, you can read this in those two chapters, on several occasions. He said, the Holy Spirit has told me 
that I am going to suffer persecution and imprisonment and afflictions everywhere, and I'm constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Hmm. So Paul's previous experience bore witness to him that the Spirit wanted him to go. Now, what did the disciples of Tyre do? Well, they probably had the same sort of revelation Agabus did. Mm -hmm. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be thrown in jail. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be afflicted. You might even die there. Mm -hmm. Therefore, don't go. Mm -hmm. I think they got the revelation right, but they interpreted it to mean and applied it to Paul's life in such a way that they're saying, we don't think it's God's will for you to go there. Mm -hmm. So here's it's interesting. Through the Spirit, they speak this word of exhortation, and yet Paul says, well, I'm sorry, but the Spirit has already told me that I am to go to Hmm. Jerusalem. Hmm. So the point being, what God reveals, whether in written Scripture or in prophetic revelation, is always infallible. It is without error. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean our interpretation is without error. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that our application is without error. And I think that's what we find in Acts 21. Hmm. Hmm. That was good. What a cessationist, I guess, would, would say, especially with Agabus saying, thus says the Holy Spirit, is uh, it's very, or it's the same as the oracles commonly uh, in, in prophetic, uh, when, when a prophecy was being given, of thus saith the, the Lord. And, um, and so, yes, cessationists do have this view, um, which comes from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, of a prophecy being infallible. Um, and I, I guess I wanted to ask the, the question, Dr. Storms, how, how would you reconcile that of, of the Old Testament prophecies being you sure. know, infallible and there being this 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 uh, this standard that's set up by God in, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22? Um, yeah, and if you could go ahead and just and speak on that. Sure, be happy to. Yeah, I do think that with the coming of the New Covenant and the pouring out of the Spirit on all people, we have a substantial and significant change in how prophetic ministry is expressed. Um, Think about Acts 2, the democratization of the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon all flesh, male and female, young and old. And notice what it says. It says, they shall dream dreams, they will have visions, and they, young and old, male and female, will prophesy. So, Unlike the Old Covenant, in which only a very small number, a very, very, very small minority of people had the spirit of prophecy come upon them, with the New Covenant, we have a massive transformation. Now there's a universalizing of the presence of the Spirit. Hmm. And Luke says, in quoting Joel, and they will all prophesy. And then we find examples of this all through the New Testament. So, for example, uh, Acts 21, we've just been talking about it. Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses. Um, Take, for example, um, Acts 19, when the disciples of John the Baptist hear about Jesus. They're baptized in water. They begin to prophesy. Hmm. Or you have Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 exhorting everybody to earnestly desire to prophesy. Hmm. And in fact, saying later in the chapter, do it one by one so you can all prophesy. And then you have um, um, things like 1 Thessalonians 5 about do not despise prophetic utterances, but judge them. Or 1 Timothy 1.18, where Paul says, Timothy, when you fight the good fight of faith, when you wage war against your enemies, remember the prophecies spoken to you, and by them wage a good battle and maintain a, a good conscience. So my point is this. 
when we come to the new covenant, we see a shift in obviously the presence and the operation of the Spirit. We see an empowering potentially of all God's people in prophetic gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, and if in fact, now again, understand, I'm, 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 let me stop right there. The cessationist argument basically is that all prophetic ministry in the New Testament was what they call foundation-laying ministry, mm-hmm. that prophets were designed to speak infallible words that laid the foundation for the theological and ethical uh, beliefs of the church for all time until Jesus Christ returns. Mm-hmm. That's the argument they base on Ephesians 2.20. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, wait just a minute. So you're telling me that all these people on the day of Pentecost who are an unnamed these young maids, these old men who prophesied that they were laying the foundation for the universal church of Christ, that mm-hmm. Philip's four daughters were, were speaking prophetic words that were laying the foundation of, of a universal church, that, mm-hmm. that Paul expected everybody in the church at Corinth and Rome and Thessalonica and Ephesus and Colossae, all Christians, to earnestly pursue and practice prophesying in order to lay the foundation for the universal church? Mm-hmm. I find that just virtually impossible to believe. Mm-hmm. One reason is because if that's true, why is it that we don't have a single solitary prophetic utterance that any of them gave? Mm. That just strikes me as as really odd. Mm-hmm. Then you have the fact that um, that when prophecies are given, First Corinthians fourteen twenty nine, you're to judge it, you're to sift it, you're to weigh it. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22, evaluate or test prophecies, hold to that which is good, reject that which is evil. You don't find there Paul or anybody else saying, look, if somebody who's a Christian gets up and utters what he or she says is a prophetic word, and they only get it partially right, or maybe you know 90% right, 10% wrong, or 10% wrong and 90% right, who knows? Stone them, cast them out of the church, they're mm-hmm. false prophets, mm-hmm. excommunicate them. You don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. What you find in the New Testament is evaluate the prophetic utterances. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. He said, test all prophecies, utterances, and weigh them, hold to what is good in them, reject that which is not. Hmm. So it seems to me we have a different standard of evaluation in the New Testament. And unlike the Old Testament, where if uh, somebody prophesied something and it didn't come to pass, you were to stone them to death, you don't find anything like that in the New Testament. Hmm. And I think the reason is because prophecy is operating at a lower level of authority in the New Covenant than it did in the Old Covenant. Hmm. Now that's a that was a gosh, a five minute speech on a very <laughs> complex topic. Yeah, you know? that, was, that was good. That was yeah, very that's helpful. Good. Um I really appreciate too I think I think it's so important to make the distinction as you did between the revelation of uh, you know whatever the prophecy was and the and the uh, interpretation or the application of it because I think sometimes we conflate those all into one thing whereas it's so important to realize that those are two different things Absolutely. that that revelation is one thing the, the way that we interpret it or apply it in our own lives or somebody or in you know somebody else's life is is a different thing and that could easily be mistaken yeah. Yeah, and I would add to that, um, people often, my cessationist friends, push back and they say, well, wait a minute, Sam, we don't understand how fallible prophecy can be helpful and beneficial to the church. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, do you believe fallible teaching is? Hmm. I mean, 
every all of us, those of us who are right here now talking together on this podcast, I, I would venture to say, at least I, I know I have, I have taught fallible things. I've taught things that were not true in spite of the fact that I had the infallible revelation of God right in front of me. And I'm looking right at the words. For example, you guys just said beforehand you were debating baptism, paedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Yeah. Well, what's going on here? You've got the Bible right there in front of you. Why can't you interpret it in a uniform way? Because guess what? One of you is wrong and one of you is right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we throw away the gift of teaching. That right. doesn't mean we we, yeah. we say we'll never well we're never going to talk on baptism anymore because we don't have the guarantee of an infallible interpretation. Of course we don't do that. Well, why would we do that with the prophetic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. Along the uh the lines of the misapplication of of the charismatic gifts um a lot of times i think i think one of the reasons why we tend to be so weary of it um is because it's misapplied so frequently i know growing up i grew up in a christian family but it was a very um very much from a cessationist point of view you know very conservative and i think we we were uh, confessionally trinitarian but in practice we were more duotarian you know we yeah. talked about the yeah. holy spirit or we talked about the father <laughs> we talked about the son but we didn't talk a whole lot about the holy spirit yeah. and i think one of the the reasons we we do that is because it kind of scares us you know in a way sure. and we we've seen a lot of times when those gifts have been misapplied when they've been abused yeah. and uh, so i guess i'd like to well, see, let me like let, let me interrupt right now okay sure. go ahead have, have we not seen in recent days a fellow by the name of Jesse Duplantis mm-hmm. who claimed that God spoke to him and said, hey, you need to have people believe that I'm going to give you a $54 million jet airplane. Right. <laughs> now, now, guess what? I don't believe that God said that to Jesse Duplantis. I think that's, I think that's absurd. I think it's manipulative. Yeah. I think it's self-serving. Yeah. I think it brings disgrace on the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So no wonder, no wonder that people say, well, my goodness, if that's what believing in the gifts of the Spirit means, I certainly don't want to be a part of it. Right. So we, we take... We take a buffoon like, and I can use that in a loving way. I love that word. take a buffoon like (laughs) Jesse Duplantis who would make such an outrageous claim, and we think, well, I guess that's what that's what the prophetic means. You believe God still speaks today. That's what's going to happen. Right. And that's tragic. That is simply tragic. And we simply have to be willing to say, no, I don't think God said that to Jesse Duplantis, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe God speaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, that's just a classic illustration of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I read that uh, uh, on the news the other day. He said that if Jesus was living today, he would be traveling right. in in a private jet. I found that so absurd that he even <laughs> said that. Like, and then yeah. I told Julio that I was like, "Really? Did he just say that?" He rode on a donkey. Yeah, he rode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a chair, yeah, a donkey. I, I, you know, all you can say to those things is. Lord, have mercy on them. Yeah. Guard us against that kind of lunacy. Yeah. But don't let us throw out the baby with the bathwater mm-hmm. simply because right. somebody is saying some screwy thing that's misleading the church. Yeah. Good point. Sam Storm, uh, the way that I look at 
Acts 21, especially in in in, in the pros, the prophecy uh, in verse, I believe it's 33, where it says that the that the Romans bound him, um, and I believe in your book, if I am correct, um, that you you see that as the main discrepancy in the prophecy of, of Agabus. Am I correct? Well, it's one of uh, one of I think two okay. minor discrepancies, and again. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be that hard on Agabus. I okay. mean, I, um, so yeah, but I do think I do think there were two minor discrepancies that came from his attempt to interpret the revelation that he had received. Okay, um, yeah, because the, the way that I've looked at at this verse has always been um, yes, I agree that you know the, the apostle Paul he, he had warnings from his from his disciples not to go, and he was completely willing even up to the point of death to. Um, to even die, and so um, I guess what what and again uh, it, it it is definitely an assumption. Um, I, I would even say it was an argument from silence, but I think it's you could make necessary implications in that. I I believe that when when the apostle Paul went into Jerusalem and and, and the Jews saw him, um, I I would think kind of like in, in, in the way someone would go to the police department and, and, and surrender or maybe be willing that they would still handcuff him or bound him. Um, and, and I just wanted to ask, do you, do you see that as, as, as a possibility of the Apostle Paul when the Jews saw him, that they would they were that they made sure that he was bound, um, that he, because um, I'm pretty sure, I mean, they don't know really internally how he feels, and so they would bound him to be sure that he wouldn't escape because he, he did many times, um, you know, escape out. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to see if, you know, possibly he was bound and that in verse 33, that really what they're pointing to is that exchange between, um, you know, just the, the Jews and, 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 the, uh, and the Gentiles of them handing him over in a way. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get your, your thoughts on that. Again, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm still looking into this and this is just kind of the way I view scripture, but I'm completely, completely willing to be challenged. <laughs> yeah. And again, all I can say is, um, that's not what the text says. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I know how to say. And you, and you know you acknowledge that you're arguing from silence here, and you're trying to make sense of how the actual unfolding of events is consistent with mm-hmm. what um, with what um, Agabus said. But it says that uh, the Tribune came up and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and then later in uh, at the end of. Um, of Acts 22 and verse 29, when the Tribune is explaining this, says he was afraid because he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he, the Tribune, had bound him. So again, I'm just I'm just trying to stay as faithful as I can to what the text actually does say. Hmm. Um, so, but again, even I would I would suggest this that put aside the uh, the prophecy of Agabus for a moment and wrestle with 21, chapter 21, verse 4. Mm-hmm. When the disciples at Tyre, through the Spirit, tell Paul to do something that the Spirit had said he wasn't to do, mm-hmm. or that they tell him don't do what the Spirit had told him he should do. The Spirit had told Paul, go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. How do we account for that? Yeah. You know, yeah. that's a tough text. Yeah. And obviously, we don't believe that, that the Spirit changed his mind. Okay. We don't believe that Paul was disobedient to the Spirit. How, do, how can we account for this kind of scenario? Mm-hmm. And I think the best way is by differentiating between the, inter- the revelation which they received and their, I think, fallible interpretation and an attempt to apply it to Paul 
in a way that went contrary to what the Spirit had already said to him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's an interesting passage. I'm sure we'll keep debating this for a long time. Yes. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, you know, like like you all said at the very beginning, let's not divide over this issue. This is not a salvation right. issue. This, yeah. isn't, this isn't something on which our eternal salvation hangs suspended. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's maintain a, a spirit of Christian brotherhood and, and humility and, and just try to provoke one another in a good way to think about these texts. Mm. And I guess one of the things, too, that I just appreciated in reading your book is that it's it's uh, challenged me in some ways, but also helped me to have a greater sensitivity to the work of the Holy Spirit in my own life and in the life of the people around me. And, you know, maybe some ways in which my presuppositions have kind of gotten in the way of, you know, the application of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so I guess I've I've been challenged and I've appreciated the book in that regard. You have a chapter in there about quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I really appreciated that, I think, more than anything in, uh, you know, helping me to really um, be open to the, the Holy Spirit's work in my life, you know, through prayer, um, through things like right. uh, fasting. Well, that's and, good. That's you know, encouraging to hear. Trusting in him trusting him in mm. those ways so right right and and dr storm uh, just going back to your book um uh the fir- uh, page 30 in practicing the power uh this uh part uh just really stood out to me when you're talking about uh, praying for the sick mm. and you say i can't guarantee that my prayers for the sick will result in healing i can't promise that my words to you will be spot on accurate but i but i can control whether or not i'm willing to step out and take a risk and the risk is worth it mm-hmm. and that was very powerful for mm-hmm. me um and and thank you very much and and i'm continuing reading your book and it's just been absolutely yeah. wonderful yeah yeah well good I, I hope it helps i really do yeah it, we we do this with our guests usually uh c- can we ask just a couple minutes to have dr storm share the gospel to our listeners absolutely yeah, yeah if you'd be if you'd be willing to do that, we uh, we frequently oh, absolutely. Ask, our, yes. ask our guests to yeah, share the gospel. If, if anyone who's listening to this podcast, uh, for whatever motivation or reason, doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I, you know, what we've been talking about uh, is not the gospel. Spiritual gifts are are a fruit of what the gospel has achieved for us. The gospel is the the good news, the glorious and great news, the best news possible that God has done everything necessary through the sinless life, substitutionary death on the cross, and bodily resurrection of Jesus to reconcile us to himself and provide us with the forgiveness of sins. So the gospel isn't, um, isn't my testimony. The gospel isn't um, you know, political transformation or environmental cleanup or racial reconciliation, although those things oftentimes are the fruit and the effect of the gospel. The good news of the gospel, and I would say this to anybody listening, is that uh, forgiveness of sins, the cleansing of guilt, the removal of shame, and the securing of an eternal inheritance in the new heavens and new earth is available to any who will repent of their sin and put their trust wholly and completely in the all-sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. And I would just urge anybody who's listening who has not done that to prayerfully do so as soon as they finish listening to this podcast. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Storms, and uh, I hope you have a great day, rest of the weekend, and uh, and we'll be talking back to you soon, hopefully. (laughs) 
All right. Thank you, guys. Good thank to be you. with you. Thank you so much. All right, Dr. Storm. Hey, dear. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that wraps up this podcast for episode number 34. And as always, love your neighbor as you love yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we'll see you back on the next one. Thank you. Thank you.